The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the longest ongoing war of the 20th and 21st centuries. It has produced more refugees than any current conflict, generating one quarter of all refugees worldwide. I'm talking today with a very smart woman, a professor of sociology at Boston College, Eve Spangler. How are you, Eve? Fine, thank you. After that lovely introduction, my ego is blossoming. Well, <laughs> I like smart people, Eve, and uh, um, got this book uh, a couple of weeks ago and started diving into it, and uh, I'm still confused. So we're going to answer some questions today. <laughs> okay, that's great. All right. First of all, first of all, if you can, uh, just give me a little sketch of uh, what the book is about. Your book is called Understanding Israeli-Palestine. Race, Nation, and Human Rights in the Conflict. Uh, so we all know about the conflict that's been going on for decades, centuries actually. So why don't you give us a little uh, sketch on what Understanding Israeli-Palestine book is all about. Well, it's written for people, uh, I think there are many of them out there who know this is a big problem, uh, that it's been going on for a long time. And they're scared of it. Uh, it seems too complicated. It seems incredibly contentious. Uh, people yell at you if you express an interest. And so they steer away from it. And truthfully, that was my reaction when, you know, I first began hearing about it. I thought, oh, my God, that's so complicated. And there's so many other causes and struggles mm. I can be part of. Uh, but then over time, and I can tell you all about you know, my story, but I, I came to be interested in it. And I saw the need for a book that would serve people who were like me not all that long ago, people who know it's important and don't know where to start. And mm -hmm. this is, you know, a book that's, uh, you know, going to give you a very brief history, but mostly it's going to advocate for a human rights uh, standard to be the standard that organizes at least American behavior. Uh, toward this conflict. Ultimately, we probably can't tell either the Israelis or the Palestinians what they have to do, but we do live in a, God knows, imperfect, but nevertheless, we do live in a democracy in this country, and we do get to tell our government what we want them to do. And what I'm arguing is that human rights standards, which have never been used by our government, would be a big improvement of at least our position in the conflict. Well... And it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, just one more sentence. And yeah. I'm actually hopeful that if we changed our behavior, that would be significant for changing the conflict because we are a big bankroller uh, in all of this. We are. But, but in history, the United States has only talked about human rights when someone else has brought it to fruition or to, to light, I should say. I mean mm – -hmm. um, you're a professor of sociology. Um, can you answer? Can you answer this? Why? Why is this a worldwide problem? I mean, look at look at what Stalin did to his people. What twenty, thirty million Russians he killed. Look at Paul right. Pot. Look at uh, um, that nutcase Hitler, uh, Idi Amin. Um, I mean, we've got we've got figures, uh, rulers of countries um, for centuries. Okay, uh, even we can go back to England and, and talk about England and and you know what the early kings of England had done to their population. So, why the hell are we so 
why are we so focused on destroying humanity? Why are we so focused on on what is it? <laughs> what is it? Why why do we do this? Uh, <laughs> okay, that's a big question. It's a big question. Um, and I, I'm not sure I can answer it uh, in its entirety. Yeah. Because sadly, I'm not the queen of the world. Well. But, um, you know, I think this particular issue, uh, Israel and Palestine, is important uh, for a lot of reasons to Americans and to others around the world. Uh, because we are putting a huge amount of our tax dollars uh, into this conflict, uh, predominantly on the Israeli side, but also through USAID in Palestine. But we're giving about $10 billion a year um, to the Israelis, and much of that is in the form of military aid, which is money that actually doesn't leave the country. It's spent on our defense industry. Hmm. So when you think about what are the real problems facing the world, facing America in the 21st century, I would argue multiculturalism, how every government and state within the system of world countries uh, can be multinational, can, can be multi-ethnic, because, you know, the original idea of nationalism that every tribalet has its statelet, that's kind of called balkanization, and it's proven not to be all that great in the Balkans or anywhere else. Hmm. So every country has to now become multicultural in some decent way. And then we've got to run our economy sustainably so that our great-grandchildren get to have a life, too. And um, none of that is really helped by all the military uh, role in our economy and by our aid, including military aid to Israel. So that's one issue, is for Americans to face the challenges of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Another issue, I think, is that if you look around the Middle East, you see is people who cannot make the ordinary lives that we enjoy every day. They're stuck between uh, thugs and bullies and murderous rulers of the secular persuasion and thugs and bullies and murderous rulers of the Islamic persuasion, um, and in the case of Israel, of the ultra-Orthodox persuasion in some cases. Imagine if you will, that the Israel-Palestine conflict could be resolved. And I know this sounds a little utopian. I don't mean it to be. Mm. Both of those populations actually are highly educated, ferociously dedicated to education. Palestinians have the highest per capita PhDs of any Arab population. Mm -hmm. Both of those populations are ferociously entrepreneurial. Palestine had a favorable balance of trade with Europe Mm -hmm. for the whole century before the advent of Zionism. So you have two populations there that actually have some resonance with one another. You, of course, have that overlaid with a political process on both sides that's catastrophic. But think what it would mean if you could break through that and if you could have an educated, prosperous, entrepreneurial, fairly stable oasis in the Middle East, what that would mean around the world for people being able to imagine a better future. So those are some of the reasons that I'm interested in this conflict, which I'm not sure is an answer to your question. But no, it, it, it's almost there. It's almost there. Um, the Israelis and Palestinians have coexisted for centuries. Okay, right? Uh, well, 
Okay, exactly let's. Who, okay. Who you need. Okay. But, yeah, so let me do just a tiny fact base that Please. everybody in your audience can have in common. Please. So, Israel and Palestine, the place we're talking about today, is a little bit larger than the state of New Jersey. Right. And it's plunked down at the eastern end of the Mediterranean on the land bridge between Africa and Asia and between Europe and Asia. Right. So, it has been from day one one of the most multicultural places, multilingual, multiracial, multiethnic, multi-everything places in the world. And for this conflict, you can take it back if you want to, to biblical times. There were Israelites coexisting with who? The Philistines. Philistine mm-hmm. is the Arabic word for Palestine. Mm. So from biblical mm. times forward, there have been Israelites and Palestinians in that place. Mm-hmm. The people who are there now, some of the Israelis are descendants of that earlier biblical population. Many mm-hmm. are not. Mm-hmm. Of the Palestinians who are there now, many of them are descendants of that biblical population. Some of them are not. So, you you know, if you frame it that way, yes, this has been going on since, you know, prehistoric times. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you frame it in more contemporary terms, Zionism only begins around 1880 mm-hmm. as a significant political project in Palestine. So that's more than long enough for people to be making each other miserable, but it isn't eternal, in fact. Mm. So is this conflict secular or religious? I don't think it's religious because, and I've been there a lot, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think there is nothing that you could change in either uh, Islamic or Judaic theology or in worship practice, which, if changed, would fix this. So, so there's no religious fix, as it were. Both the Quran and the Bible are the Old Testament, are ancient, complex texts, and if you want to quote the quotes about smiting your neighbor, you can find them. If you want to quote the quotes about loving your neighbor, you can find those. What is more compelling for me that that makes it not religious is that when I'm a novelist, I teach a course at Boston College, and then I take my students over winter break every year, and I've done seven of these trips. And when we're a novelist, which is a very militant Palestinian city in the West Bank, very anti-occupation, we also visit, embedded in Nablus, is the Samaritan community, which has Jewish uh, biblical texts, Jewish worship practices, and the Israeli state says those Samaritans are Jews, gives them Israeli passports, uh, gives them Israeli driver's licenses. And you'll talk to a Palestinian uh, Christian or Muslim in, in Nablus, and they're very anti-occupation, very anti-Israel. And you say, but what about those Jews across the street, the Samaritans? Hmm. And they say, oh, they've been here forever. They come as our neighbors. They don't come as our conquerors. We have no problem with them. We don't have a problem with Jews. We have a problem with Zionism. You know, and the first time I heard a Palestinian say that, of course, I thought, well, there's a great fortune cookie for you, but does <laughs> he really mean it? But it turns out that in this very militant place, yes, they do mean it. The Samaritans, they're unmolested. They, they make no complaints about their Palestinian neighbors. <laughs> So that's why I don't think it's a religious conflict at heart. Do you think there is hope for someday a, um, a collaborative um, agreement? Uh, do you think that uh, this is going to go on forever and forever and forever? I mean, uh, no, I, I I don't think it's going to go on forever and forever. Um, I think. 
what what do I know? I know, you know, for example, that nobody thought that apartheid could end without a bloodbath, and yet it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all know that, you know, in 1945, it would have been utterly inconceivable to think that the French-German border would not be heavily armed and very tense. And today you get waved through with Euro passport and nobody even looks twice at you. So, you know, it's not that this would have to be the only thing in the world that has got fixed. Uh, and I think that's important for people who want to be hopeful. I think Americans have tools, uh, pretty good tools, to change America's stance in this. And America, by tipping the balance so heavily in favor of Israel, unlimited military, diplomatic, and, and financial support, allows Israel to pass through, largely to the American taxpayer, the cost of the occupation they're conducting, which is illegal. So I think Americans have a lot of track record in changing the course of American government behavior in the civil rights movement and the peace movement and women's movement and the environmental movement. And we see now, I think, the same kinds of conversations happening on campuses, in churches, Hmm. synagogues, mosques, to change American public opinion and and information on this issue. So I think we we have the capacity, particularly in America, to change a key player I also know that over there in Israel and Palestine, there are people, generally not in politics, but people who are working, uh, Israelis within the Jewish community, Palestinians within the Palestinian Christian and Muslim communities, and even some working with each other, Israelis and Palestinians together, partly to simply bear witness and stand up to the injustices of the occupation like in weekly demonstrations where Israelis accompany Palestinians in the demonstrations, but also to work on sort of all the technical problems of, you know, if this dispute were to end, what would we do about land tenure rights? How would we allocate water? All of those kinds of things. So there's a lot going on beneath the surface that, you know, never gets reported with the terrible headlines. Only, only when Netanyahu gets on TV and starts telling about, you know, recently about how bad this uh, nuclear deal is. Um, yeah. Have you met him? I met Netanyahu. No. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm kind of. I, I haven't been able to figure him out. I, I know he's got to be tough as a leader, um, but I also see some compassion there. Uh, through hmm. all the, I mean, I do, I, I just see yeah. some, I see some compassion. Um, and, but, but I, th- I think what a lot of Americans, at least people I talk to are afraid of, um, if he gets pushed too far, you know, we're going to have war. <laughs> and if we have war there, you know, with America and everybody else involved, it, it's going to be a mess. Uh, and so, I don't understand why world leaders just don't see this, you know, that, you know, they don't see the outcome, uh, what could yeah. happen. Um, yeah. I, I always wonder, you know, a couple of years ago, well, maybe a decade ago, everybody was talking about nuclear winter and how if anybody ever used nukes, mm. it was over for the whole planet. Mm. And you never hear that referred to anymore. And I'm thinking, have people decided that's not the case or... Do we just not want to think about that? 
Um, mm. But, you know, obviously warfare is always the worst solution, and it's always young people who, who are going to die. Yeah, and, true, true. Well, I hope... Uh... I, I hope the young people – here's the problem I got with, with education these days. Um, these young kids coming up, these 30, even these 30-somethings, they don't, they don't know any history. Um, history is not taught anymore, and that really yeah. upsets me. I was raised uh, uh, Roman Catholic, East Coast, um, you know, uh, immigrant family, um, yeah. work hard, uh, um, I never, 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 my father um, uh, never talked uh, down on any other race, ever. Uh, we, were t- we were taught as children to give your shirt to someone if they need it, you know, feed this person if they need it. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, thank God my father and mother instilled that in, uh, in me. So I don't have any bias. I, I, I just, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around why people just can't sit down? Well, I know why people can't sit down and talk talk things over, um, but uh, it's 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 a little scary uh, for me in that these kids being raised today do not have do not understand history, and I don't think you can forgive people. I don't think you can understand people. I don't think you can accept people unless you understand their history. You know. I'm I'm inclined to agree with that. I am the widow of a historian, and so, you know, I practically have a tattoo saying <laughs> people who don't learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. Mm. Um, but, you know, there is also debate about what lessons we are to learn from history. So, mm. for example, I'm Jewish, and I come from a family uh, that was devastated by the Holocaust, And I think, you know, a lot of families with that sitting in the middle of their history and their memories and the photo albums of the people who aren't here anymore because they were taken away and gassed, um, a lot of people go from that to Zionism Mm. as a political project. And Mm. by Zionism, I don't mean Jewish safety and the need for Jewish community, which are completely legitimate needs and wants, Mm. but... I mean, a specifically a political project of building an ethno-religiously exclusive state mm. um, in an area that is so culturally and, and linguistically and in every other way diverse. Mm. Uh, my family went a different path from the Holocaust, which is you never romanticize states, not the American state, not the Israeli state, not France, where I spend my honeymoon. Mm. Um, you have to care about human rights and human individuals, and you have to be very vigilant because what was the Holocaust if not the most egregious state-sponsored violence in the world? Right. So you you need to go the human rights path. That's what other people learned from the history and what my family learned from the history and sort of the way they bent the twig that is today me. Um, and so I do think part of what needs to be learned here the history that is forgotten or never learned or, or not known to Americans is that Jews lived better for centuries in the Muslim world than in Christian Europe. Mm. Uh, the anti-Semitism that, you know, is sort of a signature of many movies and novels that we read, that is Christian European medieval anti-Semitism carried forward. Mm-hmm. In those same years, Jews were living rel- not in perfect equity or perfect harmony, to be sure, but relatively safely in the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. And 
so it isn't just nationalism. It's I think the problem really is the the project to build an ethno-religiously exclusive state in among people where you know that means displacing, ethnically cleansing half the people under your control. And because kids don't learn history, I'm going to throw in some quotes from people worth quoting. Martin Buber said, excessive nationalism can lead only to a tiny state of Jews completely militarized and unsustainable. That's Martin Buber, pretty smart guy. Hannah Arendt said, a Jewish homeland, by which she meant a Jewish homeland in Palestine, should never be sacrificed to the pseudo-sovereignty of a Jewish state built on Arab suppression. Hmm. So if we were to learn history, we would have to pay some attention, I think, to Buber and to Arendt. Hmm. And uh, I think they would help us. Your parents were Holocaust survivors, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, Are are you guys German Jews, uh, Polish Jews? Austrian. 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 Okay. Austrian Jews, yes. So, you know, we're we're sort of German, but with whipped cream. (laughs) (laughs) And we all know that Hitler had some of that blood in him, too. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which he didn't want to. Yeah. Wow, crazy. So, um, um, hmm. Okay, your parents were Holocaust survivors. Um, Were they active in... Uh, any kind of sociology movement, social justice after, you know, they got stateside, obviously? And... Uh, less so after they got stateside. My mm. mother actually got out. She was uh, very active. Uh, she's kind of my hero. Mm. Uh, in uh, the socialist youth group called the Red Falcons, mm. of all things, mm. in, in Austria. And she got out because she volunteered uh, to be a chaperone on a children's train, Hitler as a kind of publicity stunt Hmm. at certain points when he was being particularly obnoxious and the Allies were saying, hey, wait a minute. Um, He Hmm. let a few token uh, children's trains leave. Um, And uh, so my mom was the head chaperone on one of the very last ones to be able to leave Vienna. And she took, with two other young women, took 27 kids on forged passports across Nazi Germany and safely into England, Whoa. and uh, she's my hero. Whoa. You know, I, I I hope I never have to be as brave as she was. I, I so far in my life not had to be, but you know, when I started telling her about the course I'm teaching and the students I take every year on these trips, uh, I could see her thinking she's so elderly by then, and she was sitting opposite me, and I could see you know her eyebrows going up and down and. She was at her hands going. She was kind of talking to herself. And then finally she kind of nodded her head and got up and came around the table and put her arms around me and said, so you have a children's train too. Hmm. And uh, that was incredibly moving to me. So, um, Eve, Eve, was she ever able to forgive? I, I've talked. I've known some Holocaust survivors. I, I was in a business in the '80s. Uh, worked with yeah. a, a, a mom and dad, a husband and wife. Um, I've talked to many. I've talked to professors. I've talked to writers, um, historians, um, and 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 they're surprisingly to me. Um, there are a number of survivors that have forgiven, and so. Yeah, she, 
Uh, or do you, or do you forget? Or do you forget? It, 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 no, she certainly didn't forget. Not until the very end. She mm. sadly died of Alzheimer's. But I mm-hmm. and I'm not sure at the end because she lost language what she mm. still remembered and didn't. But certainly until that time, it was sort of more subtle and nuanced with her because she went back a few times and she had German friends. And my father also came from a circle of people. He came from a, a wealthier background, and his classmates, some of them went back and became the post-World War II government of Austria. Hmm. Pretty much the Christian refugees went back, and the Jewish ones did not. But they both knew people who'd been there throughout the war and before the war, who they considered as friends. And, you know, my mother said of the son of, of her friend, Mitzi, who lived in, in uh, Freiburg, her son was fought in the Nazi army, but he would have been killed had he tried to be a conscientious objector. So she wasn't, I don't know if she forgave him, but she wasn't mad at him in the first place. Hmm. But the real Nazis, I, I don't think she ever forgave. And she always was very offended. She said what was very common in her youth was that somebody would introduce her and say, this is Jeanette. She's a really nice person. She's Jewish, but she's a really nice person. <laughs> <laughs> and my mother, she bridled at that, you know, 60 years, 70 years later, she was still not okay with that. Um, you know, she was not okay. She had her best friend in sixth grade. They used to swap sandwiches that this girl liked her, my grandmother's sandwiches, and my mother liked her, her mother's sandwiches. And they were pals in sixth grade. And one day, uh, in Nazi-occupied Austria, my mother encountered this woman on the street, and she was wearing Nazi insignia on her lapels. Hmm. And my mother tried to avoid the meeting and step out of the way, hmm. and this woman insisted on coming up to her and patting her on the shoulder and saying to my mother, Jeanette, when I see you, it breaks my heart, but even you will have to admit that Jews are a problem, and we're just going to have to exterminate them. Jesus. And she used the word for exterminate, also often. Oh, my Lord. So, yeah, you know, so when people try to tell you, that, oh, they didn't know, that's just nonsense. Oh, I know. I know that's a bunch of baloney. That's a word I'm not supposed to use on the air, but you know what I'm thinking about that. Yes. So, um... (laughs) It's you called know, it's it's it, it, it's called bullshit, Eve. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, okay. We can say that. that. We I'll can say that. <laughs> Good lord! But, you know, she never forgave that. Hmm. But she also thought that they were and understood and was not angry about. There were people caught up in it who, you know, would have been killed if they had objected. She didn't expect. I think this was so humble of her. She was, I think, a hero. But she didn't expect everybody else to be a hero. She just expected most people would would do whatever it took to survive. Right. Uh, and she understood that, and she was okay with that. Right. My, um, yeah, my, my, um, I'm Italian and Polish, uh, Italian on my father's side, obviously. Uh, Nana Pankowski, um, my mom's mother. Um, yeah. Uh, her parents, uh, the Patels. Uh, anyway, my great-grandfather, uh, Patel, um, walked out of his village when Hitler came in in '39 into Poland and uh, got here to the United States, became a, uh, an estate uh, maintenance guy in in Greenwich, Connecticut and Mm -hmm. uh, 
but but I used to love. Um, I remember you know me three, four, five years old going to Greenwich, going to their apartment, sitting on his lap and in his broken English, telling me the stories. And one thing that I that I, I'll never forget, my great grandfather uh, told me one day. He said uh, in his in his way, you know. Yeah. Yes. Yes. War is bad. Yes. People are bad. Yes. This is terrible. Yes. We've had to learn to survive, but no one can walk through life alone. No one has ever been able to achieve anything on their own. So we all need humanity. We need we need people. And I'll never forget that kind of set the tone for me. Um, Amen, Grandpa. You have you have to learn to forgive and uh, yeah. never forget, not, never forget. But yeah, if but we can learn yeah. some forgiveness and practical forgiveness, I think means yeah. paying it forward. Yeah. So you know, for example, I I know I have this old friend because I went to Brooklyn College undergrad who married into a pretty orthodox family, and we were sitting around one night. Uh, her husband's a good deal older than we are, and he was telling the story about being a little uh, boy at a yeshiva, seven or eight years old. Mm. It's World War II. He becomes aware, his name is Isaac, uh, he becomes aware that the grown-ups in his world are doing a lot of whispering behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. So being, you know, the bright, inquisitive little boy he is, he starts listening at those closed doors. And he doesn't really understand what he's hearing. The one thing that he understands is that he's a little boy, he worships his dad, his rabbi, his teachers, he thinks they're giants, they can do anything. One thing he understands that they're saying is fear. These these giants of his world, there is something so big and so bad out there that the giants of his world are trembling in fear. Now, what I want is from Isaac to pay that forward to little Ishaq, who's in Gaza, and Maybe he doesn't even have a door to listen at. Maybe he's just listening through the rubble mm. to the adults in his world mm. living in fear. And what are we going to do about that? Mm. Um, that, to me, is, is the essence of humanity and human rights. You not only learn from history, but what you learn is to pay it forward, right. to be concerned not about all the things you can complain about in the past, but about what we do in the future. Right. Make it better for the people around now and the people who will come after us. Right. That's a very unselfish approach and um, or outlook on life. I, I love that. I love that. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, well, uh, damn it. <laughs> I'd like to spend an hour with you, but I can't. It would be- it would be wonderful. Uh, if I get back, <laughs> excuse me, I'm supposed to see my mom this year before Christmas. So if I get back uh, to Connecticut. Please I'm, come to Boston. I'd love to see you Yeah, this would be cool. Yeah, this would be cool. Well, folks, listen, um, we've been talking with Eve, Eve Spangler. Um, her book, Understanding Israeli-Palestine, Race, Nation, and Human Rights in the Conflict. Um, actually, I think this book should be... Uh, on the shelf in every college and uh, university. Um, I think uh, education, uh, especially we Americans, we need to understand uh, a lot of global issues before we can start shooting our mouth off and blaming everybody um, else about problems. Um, as, 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 as part of humanity, we have a, we have a responsibility to take care of the future. And, uh, 
I've enjoyed very much talking to you, Eve. Thank you. This has been a wonderful interview. I appreciate your invitation and to continue the conversation by other means. I really would someday. Thank you very much. Okay.